0: Hello AOC listener and welcome to another episode. Today we're discussing Delicious in Dungeon by Ryo Kukui. And as always we go into spoilerific detail, but an extra heads up for this episode however, we also discuss the first two episodes of the anime as well as very light spoilers from later in the manga series, just so you're aware. The mood board for reading Delicious in Dungeon is as follows. Sit down at a lightly busy cafe, order something delicious to drink and eat, because chances are this manga will leave you hungry. Let's get cooking.
1: Hi, I'm Paul. A comic book artist who has just done his taxes right at the last moment and regrets everything.
0: Hi, I'm Joss, and I've also just done my taxes two months in advance, so I regret nothing.
1: What if the dungeon you RP'd in had a real ecosystem, and a real economy, and finding food was something you had to take seriously? Well, the result would be delicious in dungeon, and getting a square meal would be an absolute deep dive into fictional nutrition. This dungeon adventure is a whole different kettle of fish.
0: What do you get when you combine the Great British Bake Off, D&D, and the power of anime? dungeon Meshi, or delicious in dungeon as it's known by here in the west. This cute foodie story should make two things evidently clear. Everybody simps for a good chef, and Lyos is a monster fucker. It was the only thing I could think through this. Like, I'm, I'm not the only one saying this, right? Like, it, it can oh, be.
1: Oh, 100%. Lyos is a, is a monster fucker for sure.
0: <laughs> I think that actually very organically, for the first time in ages, takes us into the cast, which I think we should just list off from the top. Lyos is a fighter and a human. Chilchuk is a rogue and a halfling. Marcil is a mage and an elf. Senshi is a fighter slash chef, dwarf. And then you have Fallin, who is a healer and also human, and also Laios' sister. And that's kind of the main cast in the first book.
1: We're already getting onto something that underpins all of this, which is that it plays with really, really familiar conventions. You know, if you've ever harpied, if you've ever done Dungeons & Dragons... If you've ever read Lord of the Rings, you know, any of your kind of classic fantasy mainstays, you'll recognize a lot of these tropes that are being relied on by the book very, very heavily. I often wonder, as I'm reading this, what it would be like to come to if you had none of that background.
0: Oh, I feel like if you're any kind of nerd-adjacent person, which I'm willing to say you are if you read manga, in 2024, and you have never experienced either Pathfinder or d and or Critical Role or Lord of the Rings or what have you, then who are you? I want to I wanna yeah. get in touch.
1: You're living in a very deep dungeon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you have read this before, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I, I sort of got into this series quite a long time ago, and I've been reading the manga. I think I'm up to about volume 7. I've been doing it relatively slowly. It's been quite a long time since I read Volume 1, so I reread it for this, and also watched the anime that has literally just come out. Good timing.
0: So what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I mean, where should we start? Obviously, I like it, because otherwise I wouldn't have been buying it for myself. I just find something about the humour in this book absolutely, I don't know, it just tickles something deep in me. And it was very interesting watching the anime, which left me a little flat, I've got to say. Like I find myself just smiling at parts of it. You know, maybe it was just funny to me back then and and me now isn't going to find it funny. And I reread volume one and all of the moments in the anime when I wasn't really laughing out loud absolutely had me laughing out loud again in the manga. And I was really interested by that difference. How about you? How did you get on with both of them? Because uh, I know that you gave the first one a try quite a long time ago, and you're coming back to it again.
0: Yes, I read Volume 1 when this was very fresh on the horizon. Back then, I still knew it as dungeon-meshy and not delicious in dungeon, because it was already pretty talked about from the Japanese version. So I was relatively hyped, I have to say, back then. I was like, oh my god, food and D&D basically, it sounds like a very fun, almost slice of lifey approach to tabletop, and we both know that I really love a well-executed slice of life. Mm, yeah. And I wasn't that into it, I didn't dislike it, but I wasn't that into it, so I ended up gifting my volume to my best friend, which is ironically the volume I had to borrow back for this recording. <laughs> <laughs> And reading it again, my opinion is pretty similar. I This time, thanks to doing this podcast, I had a better way of processing why I felt the way I felt. And my biggest grievance, and this is very personal, is that it's incredibly fucking text heavy. There's a lot of talking and the setup takes a long time. I feel... This is, you know, the syndrome with fantasy stories that I don't gravitate towards. There's a lot of exposition. There's a lot of introduction. And I'm sitting here like, get this fucking show on the road.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I'd hesitate to say that this story is well told. If anything, it's a little bit confusing. It leans too much on D&D tropes and, and doesn't really explain itself in places it really ought to and over explains itself in other places. And because it's so heavily focused on food, it's got this weird pacing where in your average adventure story, moments when you might spend a lot of time, you know, on action or on setup, whatever it happened to be, this will ditch those in favour of spending a massive amount of time and detail on something really weird and incidental that has to do with cooking monsters. That's one of the quirky things I kind of gravitated towards it because of it didn't really seem to give a shit about anything conventional. It's a very odd read, to the point where I'd almost find it hard to sort of recommend to somebody, but I know it's very much my kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and that's just the thing though, I respect it immensely for that. I would never say that this is bad. I am not even going to be very critical to it, because I don't have that much negative to say at the end of the day. It it simply really isn't that much for me. I like the premise. I think the premise is really fun. I enjoy the cast to a certain extent, which I will elaborate upon later. And I personally enjoy that this story kind of takes for granted that you have some baseline knowledge of RPGs. Because if I had to read this... And be mansplained both the food and DD tropes, I'd be like, like, I, I could have just like sit <laughs> here with the monster's manual from Dungeons and Dragons or something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It would not be fun if it was like that.
0: No, and I think it is a, a big point to what you're saying that sometimes it meticulously explains stuff that, I don't know, I think it could be more streamlined. My example to that is when they go through the trap room towards the end of volume one. And they just spend a lot of time. I get that this is also character building, of course, because Chilchuk gets really tilted at Senshi, because Senshi doesn't respect the lore of trap rooms. He's just like, walking in there, giving zero fucks that he's like triggering the entire room and Chilchuk. (laughs) And it's, it's a bonding moment between them, which I appreciate, but I just feel like it takes a little too long. Maybe it's a me thing. Maybe I'm just impatient. Maybe I don't appreciate the pacing of this manga, because there's other of comics we have read where I go, this could have done with more time. This one indulges in weird parts.
1: It really does, and it's one of my only gripes with the core story is that it sets up a storyline which is incredibly time-sensitive for anyone who hasn't read it yet or seen the anime. The basic story is that this party of adventurers that we've introduced goes into this deep dungeon, manages to get to a lower level where there's a very powerful dragon that wipes the party out completely and eats Laos' sister, Fallon. And the resurrection spell that also teleports them back out of the dungeon doesn't work on her, so she's trapped inside this dragon's stomach, effectively being slowly digested. And this is a world in which people treat death as effectively no big deal. There's actually sort of a mini-economy that's grown up around resurrecting adventurers and then charging them money for the privilege. (laughs) And that's the kind of thing I really like about this manga is that it thinks a little bit more carefully about that kind of quirky side of things. But anyway, I digress. Back to the main thing, they are then going back into the dungeon, effectively with no equipment, no food, having to live off the land, as it were, and find Fallon before she's digested. So we've initially set up the story with this incredibly kind of like, oh, we need to get to Fallon. Fallon's going to be digested if we get to her too late, she'll be gone forever. Yet at the same time, they spend so long hunting monsters, eating them, explaining trap rooms, having nice sort of get-togethers where they learn more about each other and impart wisdom about the dungeon and all that kind of stuff. And the two aspects of the story are, are really at odds with each other. And I wonder whether you might have been more relaxed reading it if there hadn't been that underlying time pressure that the actual story itself introduces
0: i think that's a very solid point and again it also lends itself to the humor because Lyos is like has anyone ever been resurrected from feces <laughs> you're sitting here <laughs> there going whoa that must be fun to wade through dragon dung to get your sister back and another thing with Laos is that he is very relaxed to the fact that his sister is being vored alive.
1: There's a sort of an element of it which I think is more about Laos and his personality. He's weirdly kind of blank sometimes and weirdly engaged other times. It's one of the things that I like about the overall characterization is that it gets these little quirks of characters really consistently done every single time. But then it's also part of this fact that death is not an end in this world. It's only an end if certain conditions are met. The majority of people who die can just come straight back, at least within the dungeon.
0: Yeah, but I do think it's safe to say, if you and I were dungeoneering together and you got killed in any way, and especially if it was a slow death, I would have been like, We gotta fucking get some rapido in in this, boys, because Paul is suffering while we are eating monster food.
1: Having read ahead, it is resolved-ish within kind of about five volumes or so, but that's quite a long time for that to be hanging over a storyline.
0: Yeah, because that's actually something I wanted to ask you, is that in the preceding volumes, is there just as much setup? I get that they're setting up monsters because the monsters are then used for the cooking, and that's kind of the whole spiel. But is there still this huge over-explaining of basically everything throughout the following volumes, or nah?
1: I'd say only when it comes to the sort of ecology and finding of food of the dungeon. It's definitely still, you know, it doesn't change its style, still relatively word-heavy, especially for a manga. But it does dispense with the majority of the very basic explainers about the dungeon and all that kind of stuff. But a bit like Death Note, it's a manga that revels in its own power to explain itself. I think if you're enjoying that aspect of it, if you're enjoying the reveals about the world and about the way the world works, then you'll get on with the rest of the manga. But if you're finding those are making you impatient, then I'd say that that's sort of half of the substance of it, and you probably won't find the rest satisfying. It does feel like Sometimes it goes off on a bit of a segue as well, and you don't really know why. Like, there are other teams of adventurers and other characters that are introduced in other volumes that you spend quite a lot of time with without really knowing why you're spending time with them. And the core storyline is intriguing because of that. But again, I would hesitate to say it's, like, really deftly told or anything. You've just got to sort of trust that it knows where it's going and, and go along for a ride.
0: Mm, Yeah, maybe that is why I struggle latching onto this, because as I've said several times now, it does have core elements that I find very enjoyable. But as someone who is very much a DD and d person, have listened to probably thousands of hours of D&D podcasts at this point, played D&D, myself both played and DM'd, this is where it tried the entire territory for me. And the boundaries, at least that this sets up with, I can't speak for the further volumes, but in volume one, this feels like very weighted territory. And I'm just sitting there like, hmm, when's that little saucy spice gonna hit?
1: I mean, I think the saucy spice comes exclusively from the food and the way that it describes the ecology of the dungeon everything else is very generic and I think that that remains sort of the point of it in a way. Yeah. It's interesting that it's managed to stick out and gain itself a big following and a adaptation and a good reputation despite that.
0: That doesn't remotely surprise me personally since right now we are at the height of a tabletop boom. People are so horny for tabletop content, (laughs) be it Critical Role or Dungeons and Daddies or whatever podcast you're currently listening to or watching or just being able to play themselves or not to fucking forget Baldur's Gate 3. People are just so willing and eager to participate in anything D&D or tabletop adjacent. I think that market is just so ripe right now. Dungeon Meshi really came at the right time. You saying that the spice is the food actually makes me wind back a little bit on my minor gripe with the fact that it is so tropey. Because I do think there is a beautiful balance between everything feeling familiar and then throwing in, hey, it's a cooking manga. And that's what it is at its core, is it's about the food. Because it's so beautifully rendered and so lovingly explained compared to almost anything else, maybe aside from the monsters. And I guess if you use, let's say, a world like Berserk, where there's a lot to establish about the world itself and the characters and the dichotomy and the politics and everything, then throwing cooking in that would be kind of like, you, you would feel like that was such a fucking <laughs> yeah. curveball, like your guts and you're going around with a sword longer than a fucking elephant. And it's so deep, dark and mysterious, but then you're cooking, it's like, mm, that's a fucking <laughs> emotional clash.
1: And funnily enough, I think it's in a long tradition that that stems all the way back to Lord of the Rings as well, in which there is a bizarrely large amount of detail put into the descriptions of cooking that go into this kind of fantasy, because it's all about the journey. It's all about the experience of being embedded in a journey through a dungeon or over a foreign land or wherever it happens to be. And things like procuring food, setting camp, they're the things that give it a makes it feel slightly more than just a series of tall tales. It lets you, as somebody who's never been to the land of blah-de-blah and fought the evil witch king, or whatever it happens to be, have something in common with the characters. One of the things that I love about Delicious in Dungeon is that it takes the food so, so seriously that it feels almost like you're watching a cooking program sometimes. It will describe exactly how you peel the giant mushroom that's just attacked them exactly how you sauté it and which parts of it aren't so nice to eat, which parts of it are. And it's an incredible amount of effort to put into something which is ultimately entirely fictional and you could never make in the the kitchen.
0: Yeah, but that's also where this is very uh, real-life adjacent. Because, for example, when they use the basilisk, it's basically just a chicken. So a lot of this can be replicated IRL with the right ingredients.
1: Yeah, there's some sort of hidden agenda here that the author has. And I've been wondering about this, whether it's me looking into this too deeply or whether this is something the author's thought about, which is that often quote unquote real cooking, where you're sourcing raw ingredients in a modern world where a lot of stuff is pre-packaged can feel gross and can feel really outlandish.
0: In a lot of today's society, we are very um, programmed to not know where our food comes from. So people don't realize that you're eating a cow if you eat meat and you eat like minced meat from a cow. They just think that that minced meat magically appeared plastic wrapped in your store. And the moment you highlight the fact that, no, no, this is an animal and an animal died for this, then people get so fucking weird. And I mean, there's a whole other fucking discussion about like the ethics and how horrible the meat industry. And that's not something I personally want to get into. But I do think there is this weird divide in today's society where so many people are incredibly frighteningly ignorant about the source of their food.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people couldn't cook from scratch if you asked them to. And I think that there's a little bit behind this, which is using the dungeon and the monsters as an analogy for the scariness of food from scratch. Certainly seeing the story through Marcel's eyes who is constantly icked out by all of the processes, but absolutely loves the results, is sort of similar to seeing a lot of, you know, traditional cooking or cooking from scratch through the eyes of somebody who's just used to sticking a microwave pizza in the oven or something. I kind of like that about it as well. I always gravitate towards things that ground themselves in the real world in that kind of way. And It's a very unusual thing to find an RPG story doing.
0: I hate my brain rot. When you initially started this entire segment about you wonder if there was some deeper meaning or like propaganda or something. (laughs) My my first thought was, oh, you think she's like a mukbang person? Like she has a food (laughs) fish? (laughs) <laughs> you just like went straight to the really dark nitty gritty And I'm sitting here like, oh, oh, okay No, that's that's not where he was taking this
1: I've got to say, there is something about this That does swing slightly fetishy in a sort of a weird way
0: One hundo Laios
1: Yeah, and it's mostly through Laios' eyes, I think For a manga, it's actually relatively free Of the usual ick and fan service that you often get that doesn't remain true for the whole lot, but certainly for volumes like 1 and 2, it's it's the case. I found that kind of refreshing as well. If you sort of turn your nose up a bit at manga because you can't stand the constant fan service and, and ridiculous portrayal of women, then this one's not too bad. <laughs> I say not too bad, but it's still got this like weird, slightly fetishy edge to things. I'm just trying to think there was one one particular part that stood out. It was actually very, very funny.
0: Is it when lios is like asking Marcel how it felt being devoured by the man eating plant and he has like a gist face because he wondered if it was really nice being inside that plant and she's about to fucking dick him?
1: That's it, yeah. And funnily enough, when I first read that, I remember like really laughing because of the way it was done. And then when I watched the anime, I found that whole sequence really uncomfortable and not funny at all. And I was like, wow, was I just sort of missing something? Was the vibe really off all the time? And I went back and read the manga and again, it really, really made me laugh. And I think it's a matter of pacing and also a matter of exactly how funny the art in this is because the art can go backwards and forwards between being very dramatic and really hilarious just one panel to the next and it's specifically it's Marcel's expression when Laius is talking about how it must feel to have these uh living plant tentacles wrapped around you it's on the bottom of page 55 and uh, every time I look at it I can't you know I, I, <laughs> I just want to laugh out loud
0: yeah that is a little interesting to me I watched the anime first this time around I watched episode one and two and then I read the manga in hindsight I do feel like that was a mistake on my part because I like the anime better
1: interesting okay right what was your experience with the anime then because uh we haven't talked about that yet.
0: First and foremost, I think the food takes much more center stage when it's fully colored. It has like animated the smoke and steam that mm. it makes my mouth water in a way that a black and white illustration isn't going to do when it comes to food. For as much as I hark on about the fact that I prefer comics to be in black and white, and I still stand by that statement to this day. I think there are certain elements that really benefit from color, and one of those are food. So that's definitely one angle of it. I was also very impressed with how patient the anime was. When I started episode one, I was convinced that episode one would be volume one and instead it's just a chapter and I'm sitting here Are you gonna animate the entire fucking thing because this is gonna be like full metal alchemist or something it's gonna be super fucking long it's effectively one or two chapters per episode so I was very very impressed with the respected shows towards the pacing
1: and one of the things I felt going back in and reading the manga again Some of the things I didn't like about the anime were some invented little details, like, for example, in that sequence. In the anime, Marseille spends ages being dangled around wrapped up in tentacles by this plant whilst Lyle stands there and describes the way that the plant, like, embeds seeds in your skin and stuff. None of that is in the manga.
0: It is. Like, he he explains it later, sorry, I should say. He he does the exact same thing.
1: Oh, but he explains it after she's been chopped down.
0: Now I'm struggling to remember. I felt like that was very true to the uh, anime, but maybe I'm just, like, completely blanking. I'm trying to...
1: All of that stuff about the seeds being implanted in the skin... Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's just one panel, and it's after she's been knocked down.
0: But it's still there, and I I personally there, think yeah. for... hmm, I guess this is just a preference thing, and this is where maybe I'll bring online one of the other bullet points that I wanted to talk about. I don't like Marcel. She is the kind of tropey fucking female anime character that I was like, I wish that plant ate her. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Because
0: she screams about everything, she's angry all the time, she is incredibly, incredibly tedious. I am just very tired of seeing women portrayed that way in anime. I do like the fact that you brought to the forefront that maybe she is the representation of the youth TM, which doesn't know where the food comes from and that's why she is so icked out by eating everything, but once she eats it she finds it super delicious. But I think that overstays it welcome that by the time she's had her first meal and she does realize that it's really fucking good and since she is a very good chef, I wish she could just like dial it the fuck down just for the sake of the story instead of just keep being a insufferable little bitch.
1: This was my main problem with the anime, which is that when I read the manga, Marcel grated at me from time to time, but partly because of the way that she's drawn, I think she's got a much more serious side to her. It's more obvious, or I felt anyway, reading the manga, that she's someone who takes everything absolutely seriously, and that the comic relief that revolves around her being icked out by the food seems like a sideline, or seemed to me like a sideline to her character. And I don't know whether it's something to do with the pacing in the anime or her voice actress, but it just felt like she was constantly screaming and doing nothing else in the anime. And, I found myself going from thinking she was a character with some interesting elements to her to just being irritated by her in the same way that you were.
0: Yeah, but the thing is, when I read the manga, and maybe I was biased because I'd already seen the anime, but I do think this was my impression all the way back when when I read it the first time. I remember never liking her. I think she's incredibly tropey. I think she's a very weak character. Maybe she has some incredible arc, but this is like, I know I will be crucified for saying this, but this is the Chainsaw Man problem all over again, where the fans will die on the hill and be like, oh, but the characters, the development are so good. And I'm sitting here like, yeah, but I don't want to retell <laughs> volumes of a horny, miserable little fuck.
1: I totally hear you. And I'm not trying to say that she's like the most incredible character ever, but that I found her tolerable to begin with. And tolerance just turned into irritation when uh, when she was sort of fully voiced and fully animated. And I think that might be partly to do with Trigger's humor and the emphasis that they place on it. But it's also definitely there in the source material. There's no denying that.
0: And I think maybe, I'm sure there's a lot of people by now who's like, oh my god, fucking chill, it's just a character. But I want to bring up a point that is, this is a very male, heavy cast, and that's fine. But if you're then going to include basically one other woman, at least in Volume 1, because I haven't read any anything else, make her a little more likable, please, because you're just underlining what a lot of people think about women already.
1: Yeah, absolutely absolutely and she does fall into that problem certainly in the first couple of volumes the cast does get a lot more balanced as time goes on i don't think it's ever properly balanced as far as i'm aware typically the leaders of parties and the people who get things done are the male characters and i don't think that really changes so that's just an unfortunate thing about the source material
0: yeah yeah that kind of blows to uh, bring up another character that i am much more favorable of though is lyos like despite your grievances with him being like slightly weirdly perverted about that flower or the ma- man eating <laughs> plant
1: it wasn't him that I had the problem with. It was it's
0: the way he's portrayed. It's the
1: emphasis of the director.
0: I I, I do absolutely get. It. In hindsight, I see where you're coming from. Whereas this is just one panel in the manga, and he has already cut her down. While in the anime, he is standing there, and she is potentially suffering or getting parasites inserted in her, and he's just kind right. like, mm, oh, I wonder if this is good. The thing is, I was still able to differentiate that he wasn't like salivating over her or anything. He wanted to basically be in her position, is how I read that. <laughs> 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 yeah. But what I do like about him is that for all the grievances I have with Marcel being tropey, he is weirdly not tropey for being the main protag in this kind of story. I will say he does have some very endearing traits like spacing out during battle or hyper obsessing about his little monster book or really being enamored by food. And he's just, like, so monotone in a very funny way.
1: Definitely. And, you know, I can certainly see that there might be something sort of neurodivergent about him, or at least that character traits are inspired by something like that. Regardless of how you're going to read it, it does make for a really interesting character and a very endearing one as well.
0: And I also like that he's not fucking useless, which is a very typical thing for male main protags of this genre, is that they're... (sighs) Oh my god, I'm I'm just, like, bringing all my dislikes to, to this episode. But for example, <laughs> yeah. the main character of Neon Genesis Evangelion, which I do think is a realistic approach to how a 13-year-old or something boy would behave, but it doesn't make for that fun television IMO where all they're doing is being angry and crying. Yeah. Instead, Lyos is just like, oh man, yeah... <laughs> It's like almost semi-stonery.
1: As somebody who has been through the full storyline of the lifelong anime fan, where, you know, I was desperately into it as a teenager and then found more interesting things as I got into my 20s and 30s, I'm starting to hit that kind of fatigue where it's so hard to find things I really connect with and enjoy. Partly just because there are no freaking adult characters and there are way less adult characters now than there used to be back in the 90s and it's just really nice to find something you know they're young adults but they're still freaking adults
0: yeah dude i hear you fuck them kids i've been very vocal about that in the past i don't want to i don't want to see another fucking teenage story please just give me some gritty little bitches fucking over it give me that
1: <laughs> yeah yeah like where's my i don't know i was i've just ordered uh one and two the Blu-ray editions because they finally come out in the UK and they're some of my favourite films but they just they're just about adult characters they're just about people with jobs and and stuff I sort of feel like it used to be when I was younger that it was okay to write a story for kids about adults and you just don't seem to get that anymore
0: Yeah, I I think we could sit here for another hour, but we definitely touch upon this before with the purification of everything. It's that, like, fucking weird hard divide that is so inorganic in today's society where so many kids and adults mingle on the internet, and I don't mean that in a creepy way, it's just that we are in one another's spaces, and then the stories that are being told are so separate from one another.
1: Yeah, it's very strange, isn't it? I mean, I'm feeling a bit rattle my cane and hobble down the stairs yelling (laughs) at the youth right now, but... (laughs) No,
0: this is not me yelling at the youth. This is me yelling at publishers and whoever the fuck else is deciding what comes out. Because y'all fucking cowards and uh, just fucking start making stories for me. Me specifically.
1: Yeah, yeah, and me specifically, please.
0: No more baby stories.
1: Two volumes will be sold. <laughs>
0: Man, I didn't expect that I was bringing so much anger to this because like, I feel like I really need to re-emphasize. Dungeon Meshi, a perfectly fine manga, it apparently just brought up a lot of latent emotions in
1: me. Yeah. It's very adjacent to a lot of stuff that I have a lot of strong feelings about. And again, partly why I've enjoyed it, because it manages to sort of at least sidestep, if not completely avoid, a large number of those irritations that I've had with, with other things in similar genres.
0: yeah. One note that I made during my reading of this was I've noticed a trend of food in general being so lovingly treated in Japanese media. You have like the Ghibli movies who are notoriously known for how tasty they make food look. You have Mm. even stuff like in Pokemon, you have minigames making food for your Pokemon. And then you have like Food Wars, the anime, etc. There's like a plethora of food-based media. And I feel like I never quite see it portrayed the same in Western media. Outside of like, this is me disregarding all the fucking Gordon Ramsay bullshit IRL shows. I mean, strictly in fiction.
1: I have a theory about this. It's that it's not just food. It's that Japanese storytelling at least in manga and anime, has developed this kind of way of appealing to people. It's typified most by sports anime, things like um, Haikyuu, which is about volleyball, and, and others, which takes one subject and does such a deep, loving dive in it that it's almost like it's a promo for that subject, like a promotional piece for cooking, or a promotional piece for national volleyball, or whatever it happens to be. But that passion and that teaching that it does is sort of really addictive to watch. You can find multiple examples of an anime or a manga doing that kind of deep, loving dive into that one subject, and you just don't really see that in Western storytelling of any kind that I'm familiar with. The closest I can think of was actually The Queen's Gambit.
0: Mm, Yeah, and that's very often compared to a sports anime.
1: Right, yes. That's exactly what I thought watching it. I was like, this is a sports anime. This is written by chess, about (laughs)
0: chess. (laughs) Yeah, for real. Meanwhile, the general US export is how fucking miserable high school is and serial killers.
1: Yeah. A good example, actually, with, with food is another one called Wakazuki, which is just these little kind of vignettes about a woman coming home from work and enjoying her favourite food before she gets home and the level of detail and passion with which she describes each dish and the pairings that she likes the kind of beer which she enjoys with the kind of rice yeah I I love watching that I think a lot of people do like if if the success of Queen's Gambit was anything to go by this is an untapped type of storytelling guys get on it
0: (laughs) More hyper-obsession, more stories for adults. Thank you. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk.
1: Yes, absolutely. Thank you, thank you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that I did want to point out, though, that really gave me a headache is that... And this is definitely not, like, a dungeon Meshi only problem. This is a translation issue in general with mangas is that when there's a lot of sound effects for some reason and i will never understand that maybe you have the answer to this but then they write the sound effect the japanese word in roman letters and then they translate it in english you have basically three fucking words for every sound effect on every page and when you have a very sound effect heavy manga like dungeon meshi and a lot of mangas are and then there's a lot of text Next to that, because the characters are talky, I'm just like, ah, my brain is overloaded. There's way too much going on in every panel.
1: Right, yeah. So, for example, here, I'm just on page 45. A character turns their head and we get a little, like, three or four lines in the original Japanese artwork that just adds a sense of expression. But next to it, we have sa, brackets, shup. (laughs) And again, you know, there is no onomatopoeia for turning your head in English, and they've got a whole library of onomatopoeia in Japanese, which is bizarrely specific. So it seems like a bit too much detail to put into it. And later on in the same page, we have goso, rummage, and pera, flip, which, yeah, it does load down the page and make it a bit more ugly as well.
0: It's a grievance I have with a lot of manga translations in general. It just became painfully visible in this one since it is so text-heavy. Maybe this is very subjective, but since English don't have all the sound effect things that the Japanese language does, it just... I can't be bothered reading all those sound effects because they mean nothing to me. When you just say, shoop, shoop, whip, whip, mup mup," it's like, that's not a real sound. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And they even give up sometimes. They don't try and create a sound effect like here on another page. You've got "giruru," which is translated as rap. That's not a sound effect. You're, You're giving the actual translation. So they're inconsistent with how they're doing it as well.
0: I would much rather they just write head turning to that sound effect. We had this conversation recently, I think maybe it was with Bird King, where I am a person who really enjoy when sound effects are literal, when it just says, head turning, instead (laughs) of like, swoop, whoop,
1: meep, meep. Yeah, same, for sure. How did you get on with the art in general? Because we haven't discussed the art a lot.
0: I enjoy it. I do think it's weirdly stiff at times. That was the note that I made to myself. I feel like it's held back by its own stiffness sometimes, where it could have been so Mm. much more exaggerated. And maybe this is a somewhat general thing for manga, and manga tends to be quite square in its shape language, while European comics tend to be round. This is me generalizing, of course. There are, of course, exceptions to this rule. And I do think Dungeon Meshi, in general, is quite square.
1: In Western animation, we're inheriting a lot of the rules of animation from the kind of early Disney style, where it's all about arcs. Faces and features literally move in curves. And you can feel that in the cartooning that comes out of the same sort of culture. Whereas if you look at similar eras of Japanese animation, it's quite hard, almost realistic. When a foot is hit on the floor, the foot remains rigid, and the exaggeration comes from the way the floor reacts rather from the way the foot reacts. It's partly to do with a choice of what to exaggerate and how to exaggerate things, and I think a lot of manga has inherited that rigidity. And it's only really when you see the characters translate into sort of chibi forms or funny faces, which use the juxtaposition of how extreme the difference is from the usual quite rigid forms to land a joke or establish some sort of humor. I personally, aesthetically, I've never really been a massive fan of squash and stretch, but as I've grown older, I've come to appreciate it more.
0: Yeah, I guess this is where my background in animation really shows because squash and stretch is the name of the technique and it is some of the first baseline thing you are taught here, at least when you do animation, is to do the bouncy ball. It really depends. When it's severely exaggerated, that's not necessarily my cup of joe. But what I appreciate, and it's very visible in my own art, is that I'm a fucking whore for volume. Mm -hmm. If something looks tangible... That's something I'm very happy with, and that's something I gravitate towards. And I think something that is lost to me in the more non-squash-and-stretch art style, it loses momentum to the point where I can struggle reading direction. So, for example, a very good indicator of this for me is on page 8 already, where Fallen is snagged up by the dragon. That could be any fucking direction for all intents and purposes. This is not clear at all if the dragon comes from below, from above, from the side. It's a very weird panel to me where I'm sitting, yeah, something is lost in translation here. And that happens again and again in this manga for me. Not to a point where I'm confused, but there's just something lacking for me personally.
1: Yeah, like a sort of a storytelling or intentionality behind every single line. And I think it's hard because really only, especially in comics, where you've got to worry about your economy of what you're drawing. And, And this is a very, very detailed manga, especially when it comes to the food sequences. But the first thing that goes when you've got to work on so much all at once is that sort of care and attention that goes into every single implied gesture. It's like the best art can tell you a story about what happened before and after the panel or the picture.
0: Yeah, I think the best way to summarize this is that my biggest comic yum yum is when it reads like keyframes.
1: Yeah, and I do love that when it happens.
0: I had one final question for you. Out of the meals in volume one, which one would you want to eat?
1: I think, yeah, I'm going to have to go for the roast basilisk.
0: Yeah, I agree. I wrote roast basilisk and man-eating plant tart.
1: And what I love about this is that we can have this conversation about completely fictional food because it's done so well. Yeah. I can taste each of these meals because they have such clear analogs, but they really are made of completely fictional creatures.
0: It just goes to show that the level of attention and love put into the food making really translates well on every page that is present so yeah with that in mind next episode we are doing barbarous by yuka Oto and anand hirsch
1: oh i'm looking forward to this i already love what i've seen of it just looking at the artwork so
0: this is my pick but i'm going in completely unknowing as well
1: oh interesting okay great well looking forward to it
0: same see you then
1: see you next time
0: bye, bye. okay do you have a hi on um, paul
1: uh yeah i'm just gonna roll off quite naturally i think um hi I'm
0: immediately <laughs> <coughs>
1: <coughs> Yeah, well okay. Sorry I interrupted you.
0: <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was it, that was the punchline.
1: Is that, that the whole I thought I'd interrupted you.
0: <laughs> no <laughs> That's the punchline.
1: <laughs> That's great. That's Thank really you. good. Thank you. If you're a masochist for doing comics, then you're a double masochist oh, for doing animation.
0: You're just like you hate life if you're doing <laughs>
1: Do you want to introduce next week because it was what be-doop, your
0: be-doop, um, sure. sure sure sure
1: oh i said next week
0: <laughs> well this is going to be cut anyway so
1: <laughs> yeah and a lot of people aren't used to it oh sorry my phone just went off
0: i can't uh, believe conf- you forget to put that in silence
1: fucking new phone it just it doesn't ding when i expect all <laughs> to. these? <laughs> told you to shush i nearly said next week again i was like see you next time